let's get into our time in 1 Thessalonians. We've been going through a series. Uh, it's going to be through 1 and 2 Thessalonians entitled, The People in the Now Longing for the Future. So as God's people, we realize that we live in the now today, uh, but also we're longing for the return of Christ when he makes all things new. Uh, and so with that, uh, we've just been working through this letter that Paul wrote to this young church. And, and so I want to, um, for the sake of those that maybe ha- haven't been with us or weren't here last week, just give a quick recap because it also, it really kind of leads in, uh, what we looked at last week leads into our time this week. So if you remember from this letter, uh, what had happened, if you look at Acts chapter 17, Paul went to Thessalonica and he shared the gospel with these people. Uh, and, and man, there, there's many Jews and, and, and Gentile Greeks are saved and Paul takes some time to disciple them and pour into them. But what happens is, uh, he, as he describes in this letter, he is torn away. And that word for torn away there, it, it's like a mother and father being torn away and removed from their children. It's a, a sad reality, something that's very hard, right? And so Paul says he was torn away because of persecution. And up until this time, although he longs to gather with them again, we're even going to see it in our time today in the text, he has been hindered from returning to them. And what's happened is because of that absence, Paul, he's just a bit concerned. He's concerned that this group of young believers who now find themselves persecuted and isolated from the encouragement of Paul and others, that they might be tempted to believe the lies that that were, one, being spewed about Paul. So some of these leaders in the city were saying, hey, Paul left you when things got hard. Or, hey, Paul only came so that he could gain from you and then leave. And so you have that side of it, but also they're, they're, they're being tempted and being told, hey, uh, if you don't like persecution, uh, you should just return back to Judaism or uh, maybe just back to the idol worship that you once had because it would actually benefit you more. At least you wouldn't be persecuted. And so as Josh shared last week, we saw that this picture of what isolation does or the problem of isolation, but also the solution of it. So Josh said that when isolated as believers, what happens is we are tempted, just like this young church was, to believe lies. And so to help us remember the impact that the gospel have, had, has, and will continue to have in our lives, what we need, what we as the church need, what this church in Thessalonica needed, is they needed a gospel presence that would speak to them. That that would speak truth to them. We need gospel presence in our life. We need people in our life that are uh, uh, willing to come to us and to speak truth to us. You see, because when isolated, and and Josh hit on this last week, when isolated, we tend to really quickly start listening to other voices, do we not? Josh laid out three types of voices we listen to. First, we're quick to listen to the voice of self. How many of you talk to yourself? Every one of us, right? And if you just, if you said to yourself just now, no, I don't talk to myself, you lied. And you did just talk to yourself. So uh, we all talk to ourselves, right? Paul, Paul Tripp says that no one lies to you more than you do because no one talks to you more than you talk to you. And so we begin in isolation, we can begin to listen to the voice of self that at times, man, when we're rooted in the gospel, when we understand our identity, but also I believe we have to be committed and connected to community in that. Like there's no solo Christians in the kingdom. But what happens is if we're not in those things, 
we quickly begin to make assumptions. We quickly begin to believe lies. And and we make up this huge storyline that really, if we would just think for a moment, it's not even there. The second voice is we listen to cultural voices, right? So uh, we listen to news and media in ways that are unhealthy. Or uh, uh, another way we do this is we uh, can listen to other pastors and leaders in the church. And I, and I want to just make this note because I don't believe, I don't want you to hear wrongly what Josh said last week. Because he said, don't listen to those voices. He didn't mean never listen to those voices, okay? So I believe it is, uh, and I believe he would say this as well, man, it is, it is a great benefit for us to listen to good gospel-centered teaching by others, right? So I love listening to guys like uh, Matt Chandler and, and J.D. Greer, and, and there's a list of other people that I love listening to on a regular basis. I think what, what Josh was talking about and what we need to realize is when we start listening to those voices, it's voices that are really void of all relationship. So we can begin to connect ourselves to someone and their teaching and the things that they say and say, okay, that's 100% right, but guess what? They don't know you and they may not even care about you. It's cultural voices that are void of relationship. And then lastly, we saw that there's the spiritual voices, right? Like Satan is a liar and all he does is lie. And the reason we know that is because he is the father of lies. And so we see the problem, but then we get the solution to the problem for Paul and the church was that Paul sends Timothy, right? You see, while Paul was limited, while he was hindered, uh, a great quote from last week was, despite that limitation, God was not limited. In our own lives, we need to realize that as well. Like while we might carry limitations, while uh, others uh, may not be, they may be hindered from us, guess what? God is not limited. And so Paul sends Timothy to encourage and check in on this and see the state of this young church. You see, while Paul can proclaim in chapter 2, verse 1, that his coming to them was not in vain, he's concerned and he wants to, to, to check in on them because he wants to make sure that the impact of the gospel has really taken root in the lives of these people. And so when we see chapter 3, verse 5, what Paul is saying, he's saying, look, I'm concerned that you might fall into temptation into the temptation of other voices that, that would prove their own work to be vain. So Paul on the one says, this is my work, what I know that it wasn't in vain, but man, I'm hoping you're not believing that it was. And so he sends Timothy to check in and encourage these believers, not knowing what report he would get upon his return. Really what's happening here is Paul, like a father, uh, he has this care in sending Timothy because he is like a father or mother. He actually describes himself as such in chapter 2, and he's sending a son to care for his siblings. And today in our time, we see Paul's response to the report he receives from Timothy when he returns. And really, it's kind of a, a building uh, response, and, and it, but it's twofold in nature. First, Paul, after receiving the report, rejoices in God's grace that is at work in and through God's people in Thessalonica. But the second thing we see is this overflowing prayer that God's grace would continue to work and multiply in the life of this young church so that love and holiness would ever increase, would be ever increasing marks in their lives. 
And so my hope for us today is that we would see that Paul's heart towards the church is to be our heart towards the church as well. And that we would grow in care and concern for one another. And so I'm going to give you the application up front. Now that doesn't mean like I'm going to give this to you, but you've got to stick with me so you understand the application as we work through the text. So these are my applications for our time today. First, that we would be a gospel presence. That we would be a people that have a deep concern for one another and that we would be quick to act, which means to engage where needed in one another's lives for the purpose of encouragement and exhortation, for the purpose of discipleship and sanctification, not for the purpose of gossip. You see, I think at times as the church we act like a concerned people, but really I'm just wanting that news so I can go share that news with others. But I I hope that we are a gospel presence to one another. Secondly, in doing that, we would be willing to enter into one another's lives. This is what Timothy does in the moment. He enters into their lives. Thirdly, that we would learn and grow in what it means to encourage one another to continue on. And then lastly, that our prayer for one another is that love and holiness would grow in each of our lives. And so let's look at the first marks of Paul's response to Timothy's report by reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 6 through 10. It says this, But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly, and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you were standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly night and day. That we may see you face to face. And supply what is lacking in your faith. Okay so at the beginning of this text. What we see is is Paul's received this report. But we get this phrase. But now. So we know in the previous verses that Paul is concerned about what's going on. But then he says, but now, which I believe is key for what takes place in the rest of the passage. Because we'll get there in those two words as it reveals to us Paul's relief. It's almost in verse 6, Paul just breathes for a second. He just exhales. He exhales uh, because he, he understands. And then that exhale leads to an overflowing excitement towards this church in Thessalonica. And so what's happened? Well, again, Timothy returned with not just a good report. Actually, the text says he, he returned with good news. The very wording there in the Greek for good news is he evangelized us. And it's the only time... That's the only time in all the New Testament that that term is used, that phrase is used when it doesn't refer to the proclamation of the gospel message. You see, while it does not refer to the proclamation of the gospel message in regards to salvation, I believe that this use is proclaiming the content and the fruit of the gospel in all of life. You see, the gospel is not simply a message that saves you from your past and secures you for the future. Rather, it is a daily grace, an active good news in the face of lies, in the face of suffering, in the face of affliction that's at work in and through the believer. You see, the gospel is at work today. 
It's not just something you experienced in the past and something you're like, yeah, one day Jesus will all make it new. No, it has implications for now. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying when Timothy returned to us, man, he preached to us the good news of how the gospel is at work in your life. G.K. Beale on the issue of the, the gospel in this verse says that the Christian gospel sense of the verb is appropriate here. Because the gospel has an effect throughout Christians' lives, not merely when they initially accept it. See, the good news has far greater and, and uh, a, way, a way further reach and a way deeper uh, depth than we could ever imagine for the believer. And so my question for you today is, does the gospel have an effect on your life and living today? Like when you think about the good news, does it affect your life and living today? And, and if you're sitting there and maybe you're honestly wrestling with whether it does or not, if it does not, either you've not believed it, and what I mean by believed it is you don't understand your need. But as I shared in our call to worship, that you are dead in your trespasses and sin. You can't make yourself alive. Only through Jesus are you made alive. So you don't understand your need for it and your inability to save your own self or... Maybe today you're a believer and you've grown cold to it. The gospel is just some tagline. Maybe you've grown cold to it, meaning that man, you've forgotten that you need it daily. And that, man, for change to come and continued change and sanctification and growing more and more into the image of Jesus... Just as much as you can't save yourself, man, you can't, like it's only by the, the power of the Spirit that we're changed. Yeah, you can work really hard, but I don't know if you're like me, but I get tired really fast and I get distracted really quickly. Martin Luther said, we need to hear the gospel every day because we forget it every day. And so I began to think about that and, and I said, you know, but just thought to myself, like, what, what's an example of something that, that uh, we need to remember and be reminded of on a daily basis because it impacts, it should impact our life and living. And I began to think about just marriage, right? So today, she's not here because we have a sick kiddo. Today is my 12-year wedding anniversary. 12 years ago today, we got married on opening day of deer season. We didn't know. Uh, I should have known, but I didn't know and didn't think about it. So my wife Haley and I were celebrating 12 years of marriage. And we went out to dinner the other night. And, and, and she looked at me and she said, Kyle, can you believe it? Like we've almost been married 12 years. And I said, honestly, like I can't. Like not in a way of like, oh my gosh. Uh, but in a way of like, man, it went really quickly. Right? Like it, time goes by so fast. But as I think about my marriage, if I'm going to ask the question, does my marriage affect my life and living daily? Yes. Like, you know, when I was single, I could do whatever I want, right? Like I, like I didn't, I never folded my clothes. Like I net, like, you know, I, I just, I ate horribly all the time and, 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 but it changes me for the better. Like it affects my daily life. Man, my marriage, being married to my wife affects my actions. It affects my decisions or it should. It affects all of me. 
And it does that in good ways, but also it does that in ways that reveal my own need for the good news of the gospel. My selfishness. My need to sacrifice and lay down my life as a husband as Christ laid down his life for the church, his bride. But you see, if I were to stand here today and said, yeah, it doesn't affect my life and living. It's probably because of one of two reasons. Either I didn't believe in what it meant when I got into it, which is, I believe, the sad reality of of the, the way we view marriage in our culture today. Both men, if we're going to be honest, like inside and outside the church, right? Like the, the percentage rates are pretty much the same. So either you don't believe in what it meant from the get-go or you've grown cold to it. But guess what? Like you're not meant to grow cold to it. Which is why we're called to fight for our marriages, to pursue our spouse daily, not just one day a year, right? You see, for the believer, the gospel has far greater implications. Marriage is actually a pointer to the gospel. Therefore, whether we are married or single, we need to remember and to allow the gospel of grace to affect our daily lives and living. The good news is to be our motivator. The good news is our empowerment. And the good news leads us to obedience. We're to be a good news people in how we live and what we proclaim. So Timothy, Paul says, brought to them the good news report of the fruit of their lives that reveals the impact of the gospel among them. And what we see, he uses that same three-word phrase that he used all the way back, I believe in chapter 1, where he says, man, it, it brought about faith, it was marked with love, and it produced hope in them. That triad of faith, love, and hope actually summarizes what we would term as Christian belief in the gospel. We are a people of faith, love, and hope. For our faith is directed towards God. Our love is directed towards others, both inside and outside the faith. And our hope is directed towards the future. I love what Paul does here. You see a bit of his own heart. Like, man, one thing he's nervous or concerned about is that they think wrongly of him. And man, he loves him. Not a, he's insecure in it, but what he says, he says, man, that, that you long to see us too, just as we long to be with you. Paul in that moment is saying, man, y'all are hopeful that we would be reunited. But also, Paul doesn't stop there because Paul's greater hope is that we would all be reunited with Christ. Next, we see that Paul rejoices not only in the fact that the gospel has impacted this people, but that the church itself is, a li- is living as a gospel presence to Paul and those with him, even in the face of suffering and affliction. You see, as a gospel community, we live as a gospel presence to the big C church, right? The global church, which empowers us, or should empower us, to continually rejoice boldly, even in the midst of suffering. You see, this is why Josh can come last week and afterwards he can tell me after he worships with us how encouraged he was by the gospel work God is doing in and through the church here. And at the same time, I'm saying, no, but you spurred me on. Like you gave, you encouraged me. You see, we are to be a mutual benefit to one another. We're to spur one another on. And so with this, this is another reason that you need community 
in your life. But if you need more context for why this is true and important in our lives, look at how Paul lays out their faith, how their faith has impacted them. First, it invigorates life in them in verse 8. Paul says, because of your faith, we really, we now really live. Meaning they not only can breathe, uh, but they have been re-energized by this encouragement. But Paul's saying, hey, look, like I knew, like I was already, like Paul's already living. But he says, no, th- this man, it, 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 it's some, it wells up inside of me. I'm so excited about it, like I'm living, I'm energized, I'm ready to go. As I thought about that, how, how many of you have seen the movie Remember the Titans? Like one of my favorite movies, right? Like I love that movie. It's so good. But it reminded me of that scene in Remember the Titans where uh, I think it's like the second to last playoff game and uh, they've decided that uh, they're going to get rid of Coach Boone by really throwing the game against them, right? And so the refs are against them. They're calling all these flags. Well, uh, and, and so what happens is Coach Yost, he, he calls out the ref. He says, hey, if you do this, I don't care if I get into the Hall of Fame. I don't care. Anything. I'll burn this thing down. That's pretty much what he says. And then what he does is he calls the defense together. And he motivates them. And he says this. It's one of my favorite quotes in the whole movie. He says, all right. Now I don't want them to gain another yard. You blitz all night. If they cross the line of scrimmage, I'm going to take every last one of you out. You make sure they remember forever the night they played the Titans. Leave no doubt. And everyone cheers. And I remember in the moment, I was like, I'll run through a wall right now. Like, if someone would have been walking by me in the theater, I would have tried to tackle them. Like, you're not going another row, right? Like, you will remember when you yeah, got tackled by me. And then I'll go to jail. Uh, but like... Like, you were ready. And the defense was ready, right? Then you get that moment where it's like slow motion and people are getting hit and you're like, that, they're like doing backflips and like spinning all over the place. And, but you're, you're like, yeah, that's the way it would go. These 16 through 18 year olds, like they're ready, right? Like they're going to be hitting people like the NFL. Like when I watched that scene, I was energized. I was ready to go. And this is what Paul is saying here. He's saying, hey, we have that kind of life. Secondly, what Paul says is, he says, because of this, we can't thank God enough for the joy that we feel because of the work that God has done and is doing in the church there. Again, the work of the gospel and lives of others should draw us, I said this a couple of weeks ago, to awe and thanksgiving before God. All that God can and does save people who because of their sin deserve only wrath, but through Christ receive the opposite, which is grace. Guess what? We're all one of those. But in that, it draws us to thanksgiving. It draws us to joy. Because He does that despite any and all excuse, circumstance, or unbelief that we could muster, right? Like when we think we're hindered, guess what? God is not limited. And then lastly... Paul said, it has only grown their desire to beg God day and night, night and day, that He might make a way for them to see them face to face. Again, like there's no, there's something about being face to face. There is no substitute for it. 
And, and the reason I believe that is because if that was the case, if, if it's like, yeah, face-to-face is okay, but like you don't have to do things face-to-face, like, then Jesus wouldn't have had to come to earth. But what did Jesus do? He put on flesh. He dwelt among us face-to-face. You see, church, we are to long to be, we are to be a people that long to be with one another. Not just from afar. You see, Paul wants this. He says, the reason I want to be face to face with you is so that he might supply what might be lacking in their faith. Now, now what does Paul mean by lacking? Well, you see, Paul understands that despite their faith, Despite all that God's doing, they, like all Christians, are still in process. We haven't arrived yet. They're not fully developed in knowledge and understanding, and they need further discipleship. Guess what? None of us have arrived yet. We all have more to learn, more to grow in. Therefore, we need face-to-face interaction with other believers so that we might be sharpened, so that we might be empowered, and so that we might be sent. Also, we need that so that we might sharpen others, we might empower others, and then call others to be sent. What I love when I think about eternity, you know, a lot of people, like, they have this misconception that we're going to be, like, playing harps on clouds. Like, I don't believe that. I don't think the Bible says that. Uh, but one of the things I know is that God is inexhaustible. He is infinite. And so for all eternity, we will be learning more and more and more about the depths of God's grace, His mercy, the good news, and how it shapes and transforms everything. Like we, and guess what? You won't get bored with it. Like you'll wake up every day. Well, I don't even know if we'll say. Every day, every moment, for all eternity, you'll be invigorated, right? Ready to go. So how do we do that today? We're not there yet. We long for it, but we're not there yet. Well, here's three ways that we try to do it. We gather together on Sunday. Let's not forsake this. Man, you need to get in a mission. If you're not a part of a missional community, get in a missional community. And if you are in an MC, go to it. You have a part to play in that. And it's not just bringing part of the food. Although that's a great part. But that's how you engage. That's how we sharpen one another. Encourage one another. And then equip is another way, right? So our women, the second Wednesday of every month, are meeting uh, and they're going through a, a, a journal, prayer journal together. Like, men, Tuesday mornings, 6 a.m., we meet up upstairs over here now. We're going to be starting one in the evening for those that can't come in the evening. But it's how we do this. We're to be a disciple that gets discipled along the way, disciples others. And so we see Paul rejoicing over the gospel-centered report of faith, love, and hope that he received. What I want to do now is just close out our time by looking at the overflowing prayer that follows. Let me read verses 11 through 13. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Alright, so Paul, in the midst of his writing, he seems to get so overwhelmed with joy and excitement that he, in this moment, he moves to uh, writing out a spontaneous prayer. 
I think this is actually the second of three in this letter. And what, but what I believe we're seeing here is the heart of a spiritual father that is just a really proud, proud dad. He longs to see them, but even though he's hindered, he's proud of them and can think of nothing better to do than to pray for them. Oh, that we might grow in our prayer for one another. That we would grow in our prayer life for one another. We would do things for one another, yes, but that we would be a praying people, constantly and consistently praying for the needs of each other. So he prays, may our God and Father and our Lord Jesus, which reveals the authority, position, and sovereignty of God, He says, may He direct us to you. Again, He is begging, even in His prayer, that He might be with them. About five years later, Paul would reunite with this church. You see, regardless of whether or not that can happen, Paul desires, and we see it in this prayer, that in all of this, for these people to increase in two things, in love and holiness. He says, I I want you to increase. That, That word for increase is to overflow with. That you would, as a guy that uh, I used to listen to all the time, he's in glory now, his name is John Randalls. He says, you ooze who you are. You ooze who you are. That it would just, man, it would just be a part of us. It would overflow out of us. That overflowing would be progressive in nature and that we would overflow first with love. You see, we are to be a people who progressively increase in love because of the unfathomable scope of love that has been directed towards us by God through sending His Son. Next week, we're starting a generosity series, right? And we're going to begin week one with generous God. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the generous love of God found in John 3, 16 and 17. But look at the outworking of love. Paul says that you would grow, that you would overflow and increase in love for one another. You see, it has to begin here. You see, the church at times is a really poor example of love to the world around us because we don't model increasing in love towards one another well first. It begins with us. In John 13, Jesus says, they'll know you're my disciples by what? By your love for one another. And then it moves from there for all the world around us. Now that for all, don't, like, you're maybe some of you, you're already just saying, okay, yeah, this is for all, but not those all. That's not what it says. It says for all, even your enemies. For all means all. And so who today do you need to love that maybe you want to put in a different box? You're called to love them, to overflow with love for them. And the reason is, is because guess what? You were an enemy of God, and yet he loved you enough to send his son. Next, Paul says you're to overflow or increase in holiness. You see, Paul knows that an understanding of increasing love is rooted in the holiness that comes by God's grace, establishing our lives in Christ now while also empowering us with the hope of his future return. Again, Paul's heart here is the heart of a proud dad that longs to be with these people. He considers his children, but more than anything, he desires that they grow in love and holiness. As I think about that, there's, I think there's something that 
parents need to hear and also something we as a church need to hear. You see, parents, as we see what Paul's doing here and he's saying, hey, I want to be with you. I wish we wouldn't have been torn apart, but man, I want you to increase in, in love and holiness. Something I hear from parents a lot is, I never want my kids to leave home. I, I, I never, like, I want them to stay here forever. And, and I get what they're saying, kind of. <laughs> but you see, the problem for, man, too many parents is that their identity is found in their kids rather than Christ. Guess what? Your kids can't be your identity and your kids can't be your savior. But also, you can't be your kid's savior. So our, our desire in our home, and again, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. I'm not telling you to do what I do. Haley and I actually talked about this on our dinner the other night, is that uh, we love our kids, but when you hit 18, you've got to go and get. Like, and what we mean by that is we want you to go live, we want to go live life. And that our goal for all our kids is that they would love Jesus and they would go live out the Great Commission and that as parents we would watch their lives longing to be with them. Like, I love, like, I love spending time with my children. But we long to be with them. But regardless, guess what we want more than anything is we want them to increase in love for one another and others and we want them to grow in holiness. I believe that begins now and it continues on then. You see, this has implications for the church as well. May we desire for one another to grow in love for one another and others and in holiness more than just a simple desire of hanging out together. Now hear me clearly, because I just said, don't forsake this. We need these things. Like you need to be a part of community, but may we not be some club that just hangs out. May we get into the nitty gritty of our lives, and may we spur one another to greater love and holiness. Like that's a mark of the church. That's worth rejoicing in. Whether we're together or we're apart. That we, when we saw one another, we say, hey, how's it going? But how's it really going? How can I spur you on? How can I invigorate you and encourage you in such a way that you rejoice in the Lord? See, this is what we're called to. And so how do we respond to this? I'm going to the team come back up and I'm just going to lay out, again, the applications I already gave you. First, we would be a gospel presence. That we would have concern that is quick to act and not gossip. That we would in, in, engage one another, support one another, encourage one another. Secondly, that we would be willing to enter into one another's lives. That you would know and be known. Third, that we would encourage one another to continue on. That we would be a people that spur one another up. But also that you would be a person that is spurred on by others. I think so many, it's, well, I'll, I'll care for you. I'll serve you. But I don't need anything. No, you have need. Admit it. Own it. And let people know about it. Let others know like Paul does in the letter. And then lastly, that you would, 
we would pray that love and holiness would grow in one another. And so this is one thing I would ask you to do. If you're in a missional community or maybe if you just know a group of believers, just write their names down and just try to consistently pray for them. But if you have them on your list, maybe reach out and say, hey, how can I specifically be praying for you? And then in that, pray for love and holiness to grow. And so with that, as we think about those means of response, of, uh, of obedience to what we've heard today. Also, something we do each week is we share in communion together as a reminder of what Jesus has done. We remember the good news of the gospel, what Jesus has paid for us. But in doing that, we know that, man, we're in Christ, therefore we're a part of this work of going and proclaiming. That his body was broken and his blood was poured out and new life is only found in him. Some of the petties and the harmons come up and they're going to present you the elements. Today, if you're a follower of Jesus, whether you're, uh, you go to church here, maybe you're just visiting, you go to another, like we want to invite you to come to the table today. To come and receive the, the bread and the cup. It's just, it's grape juice. And as you receive it, that you would be reminded of what Jesus has done. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we ask that you abstain. Not because we want to discount you or cast you aside, but because we believe that, man, this was costly. And so once you come from the, the, the center after I pray, you can grab the elements and go sit back down. And then I'm going to lead us in sharing communion together. So those that have been here, once I say amen, you lead out, okay? Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you came and you lived face to face in the midst of brokenness. That you suffered, that you died and rose in victory. And God, that, that because of that, our lives are changed and the way that we live and, and, and walk in obedience to you, every part is changed. And may we constantly be reminded of that good news. But in that, may we be a people that are a gospel presence to one another and the world around us. That we would be willing to engage and enter into one another's lives, to know and be known by others. To, to commit ourselves to being an encouraging presence, to, to being someone who spurs others on in the public space, but also in, in private, that we would be a people that pray that love and holiness would increase and overflow in the lives of those uh, in this church, in, in the, the global church, but also that in doing that, the world around us would see that it's only by you and it's only by your love that we're made holy. So we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.